Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I think the image that's going to stick with me from this week was Donald Trump walking off the grand stage of the presidency to the sound of the village people. Every time I think about it, I burst out laughing. I just can't believe that's what happened. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We're here to wrap up a week of news. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues Jane Cahoon and Chris Wernowski, who you might hear some background noise or some work being done at his house. Laura Johnston is taking a well-deserved day off after having worked through last weekend. Happy Friday. Yeah. Happy Friday. Let's get to it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What's the number of potential fraud cases involving people seeking pandemic unemployment benefits in Ohio? And what does Dave Yost want to do to help the victims? Jane Cahoon, as this broke this week, we started looking at this, we've got to admit, because it happened to me. And we keep hearing from (laughs) all sorts of people that have had the same thing. This is like as widespread a fraud as it gets. I still don't understand what the payoff is, but let's talk about the numbers and let's talk about what Dave Yost is trying to do. Yeah, this was a jaw dropper. I mean, we we had asked earlier in the week at DeWine's, uh, Governor DeWine's Tuesday briefing, if they could quantify the level of fraud being being perpetrated on on um, the unemployment system, and they and they couldn't at that time. But on Thursday, uh, Lieutenant Governor John Houston said <laughs> revealed that shockingly, more than half of the one point four million pandemic unemployment assistance benefits uh, claims that had been made in Ohio to date have been flagged as potentially fraudulent. That's about 796,000 PUA uh, claims. And Let me, um, that, let me, let me stop you there for a minute because because that's a staggering number, right? And yet, until Tuesday, we had no idea. And the only reason anybody got the idea was because we asked because Chris Quinn got got a letter in the mail. It's like, don't you think it's incumbent on the government to warn people about this when it becomes a problem and not just when some editor gets hit with it? I mean, well, the, the funny thing, too, was the Tuesday question prompted DeWine to reveal that he and and First Lady Fran DeWine and John Houston had all been uh, scammed. I know, uh, nobody knew. I mean, I, it boggles me. I know, it was only because we asked, right? That the, and the only reason we asked is because I got a letter in the mail. It's like, that's not the way news is supposed to go. If there is an identity theft problem sweeping the state of Ohio that affects 800,000 people, you should warn them. That's kind of <laughs> your job. Anyway. Well, it's um, funny because um, Houston, at the, at the Thursday briefing, said, 
I want to answer a question that was posed, you know, earlier in the week. So to his uh, credit, we didn't have to ask him again anyway. (laughs) I just, it shouldn't work this way. It just, it shouldn't be that just because the coincidence of the editor of the biggest news website in the state gets one and we ask a question and it unveils, it's a huge news story that affects, you know, a gigantic portion of our life. Anyway, Chris Wernowski. So is this is this a ha- is this the result of a hack or is this the result of like individual poor online behavior? Like you know, like I don't think it was a hack. I think it's people stealing other people's personal information and then applying for the benefits. What they said was they really targeted targeted this PUA program because apparently up until recently the documentation required was a little less than than what's required for traditional unemployment. So by contrast, only about 44,000 or so of the 1.7 million filings for traditional unemployment uh, benefits have been flagged for possible fraud. But I, you know, I guess, yeah, they steal people's identities and, and, and they file for it. And then some people don't find out until they get their tax information that, you know, hey, I didn't get any benefits. Although other people I'm sure find out, you know, maybe if their employer gets a call and, you know, yeah, like, that, no, that, I wasn't laid off, you know. Right. That's the problem with this. I mean, to, in answer to your question, Chris, they had my social security number. So, but we've all been included in databases that have been hacked over the last 10 years. I mean, Target and all the companies that have been hacked, your, your data is not safe anywhere. I just don't understand this scam because you, okay, you submit in somebody's name with their information. Well, the state then sends a note to their home, which is an alert to them that, hey, you, there's a fraudulent claim. And as Jane said, your employer rejects it because you're still employed. I don't know how they get the money. I, I mean, nobody's been able yeah, to explain. I don't know if they are able to like submit a different address or like a fake employer or, you know, I just don't know how sophisticated all this stuff is, but it certainly is, is widespread based now, on this. Has um, it resulted in, in any delays for legitimate benefits? Being well, yeah. yes. yes. They said, unfortunately, because they have to check all of these, that it's delaying uh, legitimate payments for legitimate claims. And they also they couldn't tell us how many cases of actual fraud ha- have been found among these flagged claims. They they report those to the U.S. Department of Labor, I guess, to the Inspector General, and they're not going to. The Labor Department apparently is going to release a report at the end of January with with more information on well, this. Well, and and let's face it, part of the problem is they're using a computer that's the equivalent of a 1970s handheld calculator. <laughs> Is it a handy computer? Like yeah, probably that far. Um, <laughs> so I obviously, mean, the, some of the fraud is working because Dave Yost wants to do something to help the victims of the actual fraud. So what's going on there, Jane? So he wrote a letter to Ohio's congressional delegation. He's asking them to pass some legislation to protect people who have been scammed from, you know, being penalized by the IRS, and um, so that they don't have to pay income taxes on claims that were falsely filed in their name. So, you know, he he suggested a number of ways that they could provide safe harbor for these victims, including directing the IRS to exclude the amount given in benefits to taxpayers who report fraud unless 
the state uh, finds that it's it's valid. So he said, you know, many of our constituents are facing a crisis in which they are not at fault. And um, he said government action's about to make the situation worse. So he said Ohioans have endured a lot over the last year and receiving a, a tax document for income that was never received will be another significant hardship for, for many people. I do have to say, I, I had been warned that trying to report the fraud would be agonizing and it would take up half a day. But right before I, I had mine, the state had put together a, a new website, apparently. So it took literally less than 30 seconds. I mean, it was on and off. The that's only thing that that's working because, you know, it just felt like deja vu yesterday with both DeWine and Houston once again getting up there and saying, we apologize, you know, for our computer system. It's not going to be fixed until next year. We're sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. We know this doesn't help, but we're sorry. It did Might make me nervous because they do ask you for your birth date and social security number. It's got a secure, it's a secure site, but I'm not quite sure why they are asking people who've been the victims of fraud to put in the key information that allows people to defraud them. Chris Wernowski? It uh, might be time to find a new vendor for their unemployment. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I say that in jest, but, you know, unemployment has been the the nexus point of a lot of for a lot of grief for a lot of Ohioans in the past 10 months. And and honestly, I, I, I think there needs to be some some real soul search, searching among the legislature and the DeWine administration about, like, you know, how to maybe fix this, these these big problems that have had just crippled people throughout this whole. Yeah. I had to talk to FedEx because FedEx knows how to deliver all through the crisis. <laughs> they've gotten it right. So get them to be the ones delivering. Somebody said, there. get the, uh, the person who sends out the bed, bath and beyond coupon. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they're getting to you, except when the post office drops off the face of the map. You're listening to this week in the CLE. The final numbers are in and Cleveland Hopkins international airport was a bit of a ghost town in 2020. How far did the passenger count drop in our pandemic year? Chris, I was still surprised and I, that I should point out there's some background noise because you have work going on. I was a bit surprised that, that as many people still did, but that was in the early months of the year. It sounds like that place was just empty for most of the year. Right. And you know, when, when I saw that, when I saw the original number of 4.1 million, I was like, well, that sounds like a lot of people traveling still, but that represents almost a 59% decrease in passengers that came through the airport in 2020. We actually fared a little better than air traffic nationwide, which was down 62% through October. But, you know, that's still pretty grim news for airlines and for the airport and, and, you know, for people who work at airlines and, and, and rely on them, them to, to make a living. You know, I, I, I don't know that there's any, any, pro, pro, there, there is some projection that um, passenger traffic in 2021 will be between 5.2 million and 6 million travelers, which, which would be up, but, but still down uh, significantly from the, the 10.04 million travelers that we had in, in 2019. So, you know, not good news for the airport. And, and I do think, you got to think, you know, some people will travel anywhere, but you've got to think that there's a large part of the population given everything we've learned over the past year, the last thing they want to do is get on a plane and enclose space like that with other people, that it's going to take a while for people to get over that. 
Yeah, I, I think so. I think there's, I, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys. I, I certainly have some nervousness about flying right now. And, and it's amazing. I see people who are, are perfectly okay with it. And, and frankly, I, the experience that I've heard from people has been pretty positive. You know, I, I mean, outside of the, the normal complaints about flying, but you have to imagine that getting through security is probably easier right now. And, and there are some some upsides to it if if planes aren't as crowded or or you know you know your your wait times drop down those are those are good things those are probably why some people you know why 4.1 million people took advantage of it although you got to think that, that a sizable percentage of that was before the pandemic hit the other good news is of course Joe Biden has issued an order that you must you must wear a mask in the airports mm-hmm. so you're no longer going to have the ability to play the anti-mask nonsense. If somebody comes on and starts claiming they have rights, they're in violation of federal order, which is different than it has been. Donald uh, Trump has not done that. It's not going to stop him. But, um, you know, it's it's I, I think what's hard and, and I have I have a really dear friend of mine who who works for Southwest Airline he, he down in Austin and. And, you know, he relies on that job for health care for his family. And and he has really been in a state of wondering what the future is like. I, I mean, his his financial well-being relies on, you know, these relief packages that Congress is passing because they're they're essentially su- subsidizing these airlines right now. And and so he's been in for 10 months in this sort of state of employment anxiety about what's going to happen. So, so, you know, beyond the travel part of it and, and, you know, what we get out of it as a consumer, there's a lot of jobs tied to this industry. Yeah, it's that, a big part of the economy. That are really going to hurt people if, if, if this, if, if this continues. So it's, it's another incentive for people to, you know, you know, get in line and get your vaccine and, and, although, although news out of South Africa is the new variants are not covered by the vaccine. I don't know. We may have an entirely new normal coming with the coronavirus. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are teachers unions in Ohio or why are teachers unions in Ohio cities condemning Mike DeWine for his teacher vaccination plan? Jane, this was pretty militant. The statement by all of them saying that this is wrong. Why do they think it's so wrong? Well, they basically think that this life-saving vaccine is being used as a bargaining chip, they call it. They they think the timeline of resuming in-person learning by March 1st is unrealistic and that it might force schools to reopen before it's really safe, before they can get all the uh, social distancing and other measures in place. The, the statement was issued by the teachers union presidents for the Big 8, what they call the Big 8 urban school districts in Ohio. That's Akron, Cincinnati, Canton, Cleveland, Columbus, Dayton, Toledo, and Youngstown. So they they just um, they said you know we're we're disappointed uh, about this and it's pitting administrators, teachers, parents, school workers, and students uh, against each other. And um, they said schools should be allowed to reopen based on a set of public health criteria, which could include vaccinations, but um, so, you know, the timeline here is really kind of fluid because I think the vaccines are going to start, the workers are going to start getting vaccinated February 1st, I believe. And, you know, the timeline is really tight for them to get both doses of a, of a vaccine. So, you know, you could have the workers coming back with 
just the first dose. So I, I think they're they're concerned about that. And, you know, this, this is a really tough thing for urban districts like Cleveland, you know, that have been fully remote, you know, making this transition for them. It's a lot harder than a smaller district, um, you know, or a district that's already, you know, doing some some hybrid learning. So I guess the CEO of Cleveland Schools, Eric Gordon, wrote a letter to the community that the district's going to begin to communicate about hybrid options to pre- to prepare parents for, for when it's safe. But, um, you know, we reached out to the governor's office and they said, you know, DeWine wants schools to return to in-person learning so that kids can have the many benefits of in-person instruction. And they noted that it, it's it's up to the school districts. And But we think this is the most efficient use of a limited vaccine. And um, they're... So, so Joe Biden is of, of the same mind. He wants kids back in the schools. So let me ask, is this really just about timing? If, if DeWine had said April 1st, by which time teachers largely will be vaccinated, the the unions wouldn't have a problem? I don't know. I mean, you, you would think. I mean, they do seem to be upset about the timeline. So I don't know. I don't know if that would completely resolve their concerns or whether they think that would be enough time or or what. Um, they just seem to be coming from a place that's, you know, we need to have a whole public health, you know, a set of these public health criteria in in place before before we go oh. back. And they, they did say, you know, we want more than anybody to, to be back in school. You know, we we want to we want to teach our kids. So I don't know. Well, and I, I, I mean, I think it'll be surprising if any teachers get the second shot by March 1st. I mean, it's not going to even start what, for another week. I mean, yeah, it, it, I start till after February 1st, then, then it's just not going to happen. It, it, I mean, maybe Mike DeWine will push it to April 1st. I mean, his urgency, he knows kids are suffering and, and he's focused on children. He said it when he came into office. And I don't think anybody would argue that the way we're teaching our children right now is a mess. So he's he is showing some urgency uh, and the teachers union is raising a great timing issue. It seems like something that could resolve pretty easily if they just talk to each other. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Have investigators finally figured out how a 28-year-old who died in the Cuyahoga County jail of an overdose last summer got the drugs that killed her? Chris Ranaski, this was a bit of a mystery case, and I guess the mystery has been solved. Right. So a grand jury charged a Euclid man with smuggling uh, drugs into the jail that resulted in his cellmate's fatal overdose. Uh, Christopher Neal is charged with involuntary manslaughter and some other charges in the August 30th death of 28-year-old Leah Day, um, Day who I should note identifies as a woman because it, and I, and I have to note that because they're cellmates and, and there was some, some confusion over why a man and a woman were in a cell, but that's how they house people in the jail, even people who identify as women. And, um, but prosecutors say that Neil gave Day, uh, fentanyl, uh, and, and Day overdosed and died. And so this, this is, you know, this has become a common occurrence in the jail and, and less so in, in recent months. But, you know, if, if you sort of look back at the, the string of deaths that began in 2018 in the, in the middle part of the year through, um, mid 2019 and, and, and on, um, a lot of them have been drug overdose deaths. And, and if you go back and, and you look at, at what 
the former former uh, warden Eric Ivy said in his interview during a criminal investigation into some of the stuff that was happening at the jail. He basically said that that you know incoming drugs into the jail are a huge problem, but a huge problem that they can't really do much about. Um, so you know this is this is just another one in a long line of of really kind of sad deaths that have taken place in there. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. What big steps did Governor Mike DeWine take Thursday involving the Ohio coronavirus battle with a curfew and COVID-19 testing? Jane Cahooney made some news yesterday in response to questions. What were they? He did. He said he's going to extend the overnight curfew, which was due to expire Saturday. Uh, This is the curfew that requires people to stay home from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m., Uh, Although there are all sorts of exceptions to that, like if you need to go to work or you have a personal emergency and other various things. But he said he just can't end this curfew because even though we've seen a a bit of a a downward trend, the numbers are still high. Uh, He's particularly concerned about new strains of the virus that that make it more contagious. And, um, you know, so he, he just said, we, you know, even though vaccines seem to work against these other strains, you know, the, the vaccines are limited. So he said he'd really like to lift this curfew and he knows it's hurting bars and restaurants, but he just he just can't do it right now. Um, All right. Before we know. get to the testing, let me ask you this. After the curfew was put in a week or two, maybe three Rich Exner looked to see, is it working? And found some evidence that it indeed, that there was good signs that, that in the period after he instituted that curfew, the number of cases and things were, were going down. It was a, a largely positive story. There's been a lot of time since then, though, and it feels like we've been at a plateau for most of that time. Did DeWine at all discuss whether or why he thinks that curfew is successful? Well, I think he said, like, in combination with the mask mandate, I don't think he went into the whys. Um, but he did note, you know, there has been kind of a downtick. I mean, it went maybe a little back up yesterday, but we, we've we seen kind of a leveling off of, of cases. But he didn't No, I don't think he, he went into the into the why. I just wonder what the factors are in the fact in the drop, you know, I mean, we're down from what our highs were by a few thousand, but it's still staggeringly higher than it was last summer. And, you know, if you're going to impose this kind of limitation on businesses and cripple all these people's incomes, you'd think you'd have a little bit of science behind it to say, look, here's why we think the curfew is working in chapter and verse, because there, there's every possibility that it has nothing to do with where we are right now. And, well, um, you know, I should say he did mention that, you know, if you're in a in a bar or a restaurant, you cannot, by definition, you cannot wear a mask when you're eating or drinking. So that might address, you know, some of the why here. And and I think the idea was to just get people to go home at ten o'clock instead of. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> preposterous because I mean, basically saying it's okay to spread the virus till 10 o'clock, but man, from 10 o'clock to 5 a.m., no spreading the virus. I mean, if you really feel that that's the, the reason to do it, then close them down, right? Because that would stop the transfer of the virus. I don't know. I don't feel like we got a good explanation for this. And, and it's devastating to businesses. And so you would think 
you'd ha- you, and you know that they're going to say this. We're not the ones saying this. They're saying this. So why not be ready with some data to say, look, here's why I've got to extend it and put up his little charts and numbers. He loves to do charts and numbers. Where are the charts and numbers? <laughs> he that did say up? that the next step might be making it 11 o'clock instead of 10. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's that old adage? This, this is Chris Ronowski. What's that, that old adage that nothing good happens after midnight? You know, it's, it's, uh, what I call the gremlin principle, which is everybody, everybody starts to get really wild after midnight. And and, and, and I think that that's probably why the time is where it's at. And, and so yeah, you're drunker and drunker, I guess. And he, talks, right? he's, he has talked about that. And I think, you know, I, I think what's interesting, what he said yesterday though, is, is that, yeah, you're probably not really protected while you're eating and drinking when you're sitting down. And, and, and I just, I, I can't get over that part of this where it's just like, yeah, it's okay to, to, to sit around in a restaurant, as long as you're in a seat, you got your mask off, but the minute you stand up, you have to put that mask back on. And, and, and it just, it, it, like, I, I, I don't see how there's any level of safety there, you know, and, and I know restaurants are putting up, you know, you know, plexiglass and, and, and keeping tables apart and stuff like that. But I just, I still, I still don't see how it, it, it works. I, 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 and I just think he has a responsibility to fully explain it and back it up with some numbers. That's all, that's all the restaurant industry has been asking for since day one. And we still don't have them. Yeah. Um, we also should talk about the other thing he announced, the COVID-19 testing. Yeah. He said the state um, is going to purchase at least 2 million rapid antigen tests to give out to local health departments so they can be more broadly used. They have a $50 million deal with Abbott Pharmaceuticals and eMed. And uh, these tests, supposedly they're, they're more reliable than they used to be. And um, they're, I think they're going to use some CARES Act dollars to, to pay for them. And so DeWine described this as a way to target like like if you have a hot spot or something, you can go in there and do a lot of tests. And um, the chief medical officer, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, said they do ha- tend to have some uh, false negatives. So you shouldn't necessarily feel like if you get one of these tests, which I guess you can use at home, that uh, that you're home free. But if you do have a false positive or if you do have a positive, there's less of a chance of it being false. So, you know, at least uh, that you should be isolating. And so this is a potential, you know, it could help prevent the spread. So, But here's the thing on this one. I, I did not know that there might be a shortage of tests. My, my interpretation of the current state of things is that if people wanted to get a test, they could get a test. But the, the fact that he's announcing that I'm spending $50 million to get all these additional tests creates the impression that we need them. Uh, and so I, I guess we should do some reporting to see whether the county health departments have felt like they don't have enough tests. And if so, how has that impacted the spread of the, the virus? I, I mean, I can say as some I've been tested a couple of times. I don't know if the two of you have taken any, but they they're putting up a lot of roadblocks to getting in there and getting a test. It's not like you can just ask your doctor to have it. They still they still make you jump through a ton of hoops to get them. So I and are you talking about the PCR test, Chris? Um, I'm. I mean, I'm just talking about tests in general. I, you know, I, I've I've had them both at the clinic and at CVS, and you know, it's it's still 
we, we, the access to testing should be much more open than it is right now. And, and do you and, think that's what the point of this is then that this right, is to make I, 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 think, I think being able to, to track is, is an important part of, of dealing with this. And I, and again, it does, you know, getting, getting more, more data on where hotspots are, you're right. will will allow them to sort of decide where, I mean, it'll help them make better policy decisions, you know, and, and it'll give them a, a much clearer and accurate picture of, of where the significant problems are, because it's, it's, it's still, it's still very hard for some people to, to, to get access to testing and, and it should be universal at this point. You know? Yeah, I guess, I guess, and that's what my, my reaction is, is that I didn't know that I, my, my belief had been testing had been made much more liberal and we could do it. Obviously that's not the case because the governor felt the need to spend $50 million. So we should probably do a news you can use story for people about the current state of testing, what you have to do to do it. The fact that you have to jump through hoops, all of that. Uh, it's interesting. And you know, I didn't know it, Jane, I don't think you knew it. So there's probably a lot of people who well, read our platforms that didn't know it. Think of so it this way. The, sort of confusion that is around vaccination, you know, like the, the having to go to many different places and, and to look at all of these various systems that you may have to jump through that still kind of exists for testing. You know, there, there are some places where you can drive up and get a test, but there, you know, if, if you want to go to your doctor, like my, like my doctor requires a consultation, you know, they won't just give you a test. If you've, if you think you've just been in contact, you actually have to be symptomatic and, and it varies between medical system. I, I mean, it's really, but what about everything we've reported on? If you need a test, the drugstores are doing the test. You don't need an appointment. You just right, go. Those are, those are the ones that they say like, aren't reliable. And you got to remember, <laughs> you got to remember. Know, some of those are the PCR test. I know someone who had one of those, um, unfortunately was positive, but I, All right, so, I think these antigen tests also, as I said, they're going to the health departments. So I don't know that it's going to be that widely available to just anybody. It sounds like they're targeting them. Like if they think they have an outbreak somewhere, you know, the health right. department will decide what to do. But if there's confusion among us, there's confusion among our, our audience. We should, we should clear that up. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay, Friday, on to it, right? Let's finish. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back Monday with another discussion of the big news of the day. 